0: Hi everyone, Francis here. Just a quick note about the audio for the following episode. We had to talk in the hallways of Juilliard because there were no rooms, and we thought we found a quiet hallway, but it soon became not that quiet, which is why you'll hear a lot of background noise. (laughs) to so many wrong notes.
1: uh, I am very experienced in this matter, don't worry, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You are part of our continuing series of interviewing awesome people, so I'm so glad. I'm very happy to do it. And this awesome person is Richard Egar. Yeah,
1: my name is Richard Egar, I'm known for all sorts of things, I'm a producer of Massive Wind and other... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Noises, uh, mostly in early music, but not not exclusively.
0: Yes, and frankly, I play the harpsichord because of you listen to your recordings, I have to be honest. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, that's nice to yeah. So we'll we'll talk more about that. <coughs> but we like to open every interview with some stupid right. questions.
1: All right? Sounds good to me. All right. Can you
0: pronounce for me the composer, the English composer born in 1659? died in 1695 Purcell Purcell mm-hmm. why do people say Purcell uh,
1: don't ask me I've always said Purcell I think I, as far as I'm aware there is some bit of doggerel somewhere where there is a rhyme which uh, leads us to believe that it's Purcell not Purcell
0: really yeah. well I've heard from people that there's some like detergent in Britain called Purcell <laughs>
1: Percel, yeah. It's a to, to, to washing powder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, And so people spell differently,
0: of course. But yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Okay. So <laughs> thank you. The pleasure. I'm so glad
1: to finally know that I say Good. this right. Died of chocolate poisoning.
0: That's what I've heard too. Ooh, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's a myth I'm propagating. <laughs> please do.
0: Um, Second stupid question. Best Star Trek captain
1: and why? That's tricky. That's really tricky. It's got to be Kurt. Co- Why Kurt? I, I think it's just a it's a personal choice. I mean, it, even though he, you know, he, he was not. Uh, there aren't that many episodes. There are only seventy-eight episodes. The next generation, there are hundreds, uh, and most of the other series. But it's just some, There's something about it. It, it, it. He's the sort of war captain. All the other captains, no matter how good or individual they are, a sort of they, they somehow you just always have to reference them in in comparison to Kirk. I think, but that's ju- that's just my opinion.
0: So because Kirk was the first,
1: because Kirk was the first, I think, uh, yeah. it just set the and there's just nobody like William Shatner. I mean, you know, he is just uh, not just as an actor as well. He's and as a personality, he's just so. But Patrick Stewart, come on. Uh, sure, but there's, yeah, but Patrick Stewart hasn't sort of you know, recorded rap songs. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and just at some level, you know, he uh, Shatner just—it's outrageous. He just uh, he doesn't take himself too seriously. He sort of really, really laughed at himself. I think. Though I don't, I don't suppose George Decay would agree with me, but um, um, yeah, no, I think just I just I, I just. All right. It, it, it all stems from that original. The, the original series is just, it is magnificent. It's good. I'm always been a
0: next gen guy. Yeah. So.
1: Well, me too. And I, actually, I love Deep Space Nine as well. And Cisco is such. He's such, a, he's such a weird. He's such a weird character. Avery yeah. Brooks is such a weird, strange. Uh, uh, what do you think of Voyager? I well, never liked Voyager. Well, the problem was that the voice just pissed yeah. me off enormously. <laughs> Her voice just greater, she slightly modified it by by season three, Mm -hmm. became less of a Captain J (laughs) now. It was just like this sort of S&M robot, Um, but I I couldn't get past the voice, but actually it's quite, I like the series. The Enterprise is the only one I haven't really, really liked very much. Um, I just can't get away from the fact that, that he is Quantum Leap. Uh-huh. I can't. I just can't watch it <laughs> <laughs> without, without you know, equating it with quantum leap. So that, that sort of damaged me for that one. But there's some good, some good episodes, some good, good stories. That's great.
0: And last stupid question: Last meal you're going to die tomorrow. What's going to be your last?
1: Probably meal? chicken over rice. If this was anything to go, <laughs> go by. <laughs>
0: We're at the corner. Uh, uh, at the corner of Juilliard, there's a halal cart.
1: It's great. It's, it's great. really good. It must be one of the best meals in town. It is five bucks it's for great chicken over rice. It's <laughs> really the best.
0: All right, let's get down to business here. Usually, when I interview, or actually, I haven't. You're the first harpsichordist I've interviewed for this podcast, okay. actually, which is kind of okay. weird. Okay. Good. But usually, when we interview a harpsichordist, we talk about why they play the harpsichord. I don't want to ask you that question. Okay. What I want to talk about is people say, people meaning people Um, who don't know the harpsichord, mm -hmm. that the harpsichord has no dynamics. And there is, usually you know what I do is I actually play your recording with Andrew Manzi of Corelli La Folia. Uh suck on this <laughs> <laughs> excellent <But laughs> because that was like one of the first recordings right. like I'm like oh yeah so I want to just kind of dissect your process of how you think about creating yeah. dynamics
1: uh, I don't think about it I just do it uh, it's, it's, about, it's it's always been the fascination with with, with the instrument for me you know, I had I was lucky to have I sort of started the harpsichord because there was one in the chapel where I was almost got up, Claire up. So it was a, quite a good harpsichord, it wasn't it was sort Of, of this time, it was a seventies harpsichord, so it wasn't terribly sophisticated, but it was a good instrument. And I just started playing. I just started experimenting. And then I had a, I had a fantastic piano teacher a few years before, whose, whose boyfriend at the time was also a harpsichord teacher. So I went to him, and he was just a really, you know, great musician. Both of them were, but they were both called David as well. Um, and the, my help school teacher was just an amazing uh had amazing ability to to show how sound worked on the hop school just to produce sound uh because like most people here mostly i've heard help school recordings it's sort of this sort of slight irritant mm. the, 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 something about the, the sound yeah, of the hop school can be absolutely the most irritant irritating thing on the planet uh, but he was great at just to sort of making me and how to produce a sound. And, and actually, Leonhardt, although I, I had no massive, massive musical eureka moments at all, because I was then, when I, when I started with him, I was probably what, uh, 24, 25. So I'd kind of been through Cambridge, I'd kind of figured a lot of stuff out for myself, starting with musical ideas and. So that was pretty well formed by that time. But he was great at uh, really honing my ability to to listen to the instrument well. Um, so it's I, I guess it's I don't think about it anymore. I just I just listen for dynamics. I, I, it's just it's essential when playing the instrument to to listen for, to, to to create and listen for color and dynamic. And that's we you know we have only two things at our disposal, and that is. How long we play and where we play it; those are the two things we have. It's all trickery, uh, because I'm mean, I, I, you know, the whole Beecham story about skeletons and all that kind of stuff. And it is it is intrinsically uh, absolutely unmusical instrument, the most unmusical instrument you could possibly have, yeah. because it, all it does is go ping. It is the Monty Python machine that goes ping. Um, so that's the challenge of the instrument and. The player, the great players, must have made it a musical instrument. You know, the, throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, Bach and Fascobaldi and, uh, and Louis Couper, they must have made the instrument sing and sound colourful. So, uh, that, that in itself is a sort of proof that the dry sewing machine approach to playing the instrument is wrong, because the music, yeah. should, the music should not be like that. Any music should not be like that. Um, and you know, especially the 17th century repertoire is so rich, yeah. such a rich uh, period for the harpsichord. That's the real—that's where the real harpsichord music comes from, 17th century. And it's, of course, it's it's all wrapped up with the whole 17th century sound world of the lute, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's so important as well to understand to understand that that world, where we're coming from, oh, no. our instrument comes from. And I can tell you now that not not every harp that I've come across, in, especially in the country where right. I live even acknowledges that relationship or does anything to try and uh, hear the lute in, you know, okay, we talk about steel brise coming from it, but just actually the, the way that the lute functions or the gamba functions and the resonance that's involved in in playing well on those instruments and, and ha- literally physically how lute fingerings work. And, and a lot of the fingering on the lute are, are absolutely designed to create extra resonance and extra... Uh-huh. extra Stuff around a, a, a sound, so um, that's really important for me as well. So I, you know, I've got plenty of lute music actually, I've, which I, I I listen to and and look at in tablature because it's the way that the, tab, the, the the music works on the instrument is so important for, for us. Just even in terms of the ornaments we play, mm-hmm. you often hear ornaments being played in a very very dry mechanical manner, and if you listen to the way that ornaments are played on the lute, it's completely different. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's really, really important. Yeah, and it's,
0: I would describe your playing as wet. Yes, thank and you very much.
1: Massive compliment. Yes, yeah, it is. I mean, because that, that's, that is where our, that's where we come from, that, uh, that whole sound of the lute and, and that, that resonant sound. That's how these instruments were, were thought of in the 17th century. They were classed as the resonant family of instruments, the harp, the lute, the gamba. Chordal playing instruments. Mm-hmm. And the harpsichord chord is one of those. It's just a key it's a keyboard loop, basically. And that's how it should be approached.
0: Well, I mean for me it was hard to play wet because it sounded so dirty. Ooh. And I guess <laughs> <laughs> how would you encourage people to embrace the dirt? Because it actually does sound better and it doesn't sound dirty. It's, it's
1: controlled dirt. I mean, you know, you have to it's not just a sort of blanket just it's, it's just exploring, exploring the dark side, the dirty <laughs> side. Keeping your fingers down, listening to the way that the instrument reacts to when you, when you add that. Even in the bass, there's a whole culture, especially in the Netherlands, about articulating the left hand and, and then playing detached. It's, it has no historical base, in fact, it just doesn't. Even mm-hmm. uh, a great great friend and colleague of mine, who's now teaching one of my students. Um, because I've, I've finished teaching in Amsterdam now and so she, so she's gone to, the, to another establishment within the country. And he's saying, yeah, yeah. Or the, or the sources say you must articulate the left hand. Find me one. <laughs> there aren't any. Now, if you look at Kupraun's fingers, especially the bass, and, uh, they're designed to keep the sound in the bass, mm-hmm. the, the finger substitution, to, to keep a connected sound in the bass. Um, and okay, it's different when you played uh, it something more active bass line, But this sort of detached man it just it just kills the instrument, for me at least, and for my understanding well, of what well, the instrument's well, about. How would you then apply this to
0: modern piano playing? Because you also yeah. coach pianists.
1: Well, you know, you learn you learn how Bach or whatever uh, the music is functions on a harpsichord. So I, I remember going it was in career actually teaching uh, it was last time I was in Korea, I gave a master class, I think it was Korea, uh-huh. at a university somewhere. And there's some very good modern pianists came along. And one of them brought the B minor fugue from book one, uh-huh. Little Clavier. And that's just such a, particularly on the harpsichord, that's such a special, special piece, especially towards the end where there's a very, very high sequence, which is the surprising uh-huh. sequence. And this pianist, who's was played very well, it's just he was smashing the crap out of the, out of this sequence, this high sequence, because it's a very intense sequence. But yeah. you know, when you when you have that on on the harpsichord, it's it's Brilliant. not loud. It is not. It's just it's just not the way that that bit of music is on the harpsichord. So I just pointed that out to him, saying look, what you're doing, the the idea and the intensity that you're trying to bring to this passage is 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 basically correct but it doesn't function like that on the an harpboard and I just brought that to his attention I didn't say don't play it like this because mm-hmm. I would never no. say that because it's a it's a piano it's different um, but the, his in, so his instinct the musical understanding and instinct was right but the, the way he was producing on the piano on the modern piano was not how it would sound on the, on the Now, it, uh, so purists among us would say that's wrong. Yeah. It's not wrong, it's just not the way it would be. So, <laughs> so I often say, you know, when, when you take this music, when I play, play Bach on a modern piano or synthesizer or whatever it is, it doesn't change the music, it's just I'm using a different tool. So I, there are different possibilities, but what's important for me is that I have been informed by the way the way the music sounds on the the proper instrument, that's That's, that's a loaded term, on on the the instruments that were available to to, Bach at the time.
0: So that brings up another question that I have, which is a lot of modern, (laughs) quote-unquote, modern players, other than historical performance players, tend to view HP as rule-based, and you seem to be the guy who... (laughs) Not set out of the park. Can you tell me why you don't like this rule-based idea?
1: Because rules it, rules are there to be broken. They always have been and always will be. And there are certainly you, you can take rules and you can you can apply them. And, and well, like the, there's a certainly you know, there many factions who talk about you know, good notes, bad notes, good beats, bad beats. That's all very well. But if you're just playing good beat, you know, if you take a piece of you know, ten, 10 bars of good beats and all you do is go strong, weak, strong, weak, that's not music. That's what, not what music does. Music is always going against that. And it's, and it's how music goes against those rules that makes it interesting wow. music. Otherwise, every piece sounds the same. It's, it's, it's nonsense. So, and that sort of application of, sort of three-year-old rules of music, which is basically what that is, wow. That's not that's not what grown-up music's about. So, three year old um, meaning like well, yeah, but basic basic uh-huh. ideas of you know, when you're teaching somebody what is four four. Of course, it, you know, it's one, two, three there is a hierarchy. Yeah. But music proper music, adult music, doesn't behave that way. It's it's all about so take something like just something that comes around the, the opening of the second orchestral suite by Bach, the flute suite, in B minor. So you have it's four, four beats of a bar, you have the dissonances are on the weak beats. Mm. Also, melodically, the interest is on are on the weak beats. Uh-huh. So what do you do? Do you go... No, you don't. Uh-huh. You, 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 you see what the, the music is doing within those rules, and you then see how that, operates, so there is a tension on the, on the weak beats, yeah. which is not the same as if, a tension that would, if it was a bit, you know, if there's a dissonance on the downbeat, that gives you a, a, a very direct feeling of tension, uh, uh, whereas a, a, te- a dissonance on a weak beat gives you a very different feeling of what tension it is, so It's a, the tension's in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So it's always assessing, you know, what the music is doing, rather than applying rules to things. It's, it doesn't, you know, looking at rules or applying rules doesn't, doesn't give you much,
0: Why do we have this kind of reputation for rules? Don't ask me. (laughs) Where did it come from?
1: Well, you you had...
0: Because the more I play, you know, quote-unquote, historical performance, the more I realise that there aren't rules.
1: I I agree with you. I mean, I think the, the, the the more I read, the more I try and find out about these things, the more, in a way, the more... Permission and freedom I find in looking at it, in, in performing music. Um, but I guess it's all—it's all—it's you know, it's, it's in the context of you know. Uh, the, 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 I think the movement is di- different now from, from when it was. When it started off in the seventies and eighties, yeah. you know, there was a, there was definitely a, a feeling that we have to get away from this big, heavy. Uh, f- you know, romantic idea of what music is, and clean it up. You know, without know, cleaning a picture to make it all you no know, scrubbing. And this music is not clean. You know, this idea of cleanliness and what music is clean. And life was not clean in the seventeenth century. You know, the, the way people experienced life must have been very different and, mu- and much more dirty than than actually uh, basically what we lead is, is very very sanitised, uh, certainly for most of us in the West, sanitised existence. You know, we, don't, we don't see people having their head cut off or being hung, drawn and quartered on a regular basis, which anybody in London in the 17th century would have been very used to seeing that. You know, it's just yeah. that, that's something to just consider just something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's a, we have a very different sense of experience now. Um, yeah, life was dirtier in lots of ways, I'm sure. So you know, music, music wasn't clean. It wasn't. A, it wasn't there. Designed to like a lot of people who go to concerts these days to go and have a nice sleepy time at a concert and just sort of relax. Uh-huh. It was. A, it was a, an interactive experience. You went to the opera, well, probably to go and do nasty things in the box for a start off. But you, you would engage with with the performance in a very active manner. You would applaud. You would shout. You would throw things. It was an interactive experience. You wouldn't be expected to be involved in it for the five hour, or however long the, an opera would take. You'd, you'd, you'd pay attention when you felt you wanted to, or when your favourite song was on, and you'd throw things and shout abuse. It was—it's just the whole idea of what music was then. It was—it was much more involved. People—it was—it was the modern. It was modern music. It was very—it was relevant. It was what people wanted to hear. Um, yeah, it's very very different. The concert-going experience is so different now. I mean, everybody's expected to sit there and behave and shut up. Exactly. That's just such a such a twentieth-century idea, a late twentieth-century idea of what mm-hmm. second half of the twentieth-century idea about what you know, a concert's about.
0: Exactly. I mean, how can we relax those rules? Though?
1: Well, by by allowing uh, by uh, when, when I whether it's a symphonic concert which I'm conducting or solar recital or chamber, chamber recital or a concert with the canonized music interact with the audience, talk to the audience either before the concert or the pre-concert talk and, and or during the concert an introduction to, mm-hmm. to the music if it's, not, if it's not familiar music then give the audience something to work with yeah. don't just expect them to, to get it, help them and, and, and invite them to interact with you know, give them some clues as to what, what to listen for
0: what do you think about, like, if I hear a great performance or just a moment, I just want to go, wow, at one point, and now we're not allowed to do that. Well, that, that's, or laugh that's terrible. It's, it's terrible.
1: It's terrible. I think that's really, really bad, and I, yeah. I I fight against that as
0: much as I can. I mean, we were at a concert together in Alice Tully Hall where yeah. I just kind of wanted to applaud every movement of yeah. a certain piece.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, and that's something that's just, it's a really, uh, something that changed after the second or third decade of the 20th century. Audiences were still much more interactive at the beginning of the 20th century than, than they were, say, after, after the Second World War. I didn't, you know, just, I'm sure it's partly cultural as well. People expected to behave at concerts. That just, just wasn't the case. Um, yeah, I mean, I think my, some of my proudest moments have been uh, when I've, I've done Brandenburg Five. I don't know how many times I've played it, but I remember playing it with the Munich Chamber Orchestra. We, we went to Leipzig. We played it in Gewandhaus uh, in Leipzig. And the, the audience started applauding after the cadenza in the first movement. That's great. It made the papers. It made the paper the, paper the next day. audience applauds after cadenza. What, what, what is this all about? You know? And that's you know, that, that's such a, uh, a absolutely that's exactly what should happen at uh-huh. the end of that cadenza. It's like a, a great jazz riff. You know? Exactly. So uh, yeah, I'm very am very happy when that kind of thing happens in concerts and people laugh and if they want to applaud between movements, they should absolutely do so.
0: Or even during, would you mind? Even during.
1: I mean, something like you know the Mo- Mozart Paris Symphony. He, uh, Mozart talks about it in a letter to his dad. He says, "Yeah, I wrote I wrote this bit in the first movement. I knew the French would." would really like these bars. It's just a simple tonic dominant crescendo. So uh-huh. a bit like Rossini crescendo. And he did it twice because he knew the second time they'd, they'd applaud and shout bravo even more. So even during a movement audiences were composers knew the audiences were going to react to the music you know, in a, in a uh, vocal and absolutely you know, audible way.
0: Yeah, and uh, the whole point of classical music declining is because it suddenly became church. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't understand how that happened and why people what I think the people who are most guilty of it are the practitioners those of us on stage
1: uh, some uh, some, not all of them but yeah. a lot, lot of them And also management and uh, both hall management and orchestra orchestra management uh, they, they like to to try and make people behave in that way but um, I'm not one of them <laughs> <laughs> good. no it's very important it's That's very important to to get audiences involved at every, you know, every moment. So I'm doing the Roka twice this, this month with two different orchestras. When I last did it, I did it with the Handel and Haydn Society in Boston. And it's really important that those first two chords, that the audience don't expect them. Everybody knows Eroka. You know? you know, everybody knows the first two chords of Eroka. So what is really essential for me when I do that piece... Is I go out as soon as I go out, as soon as I've got to the rostrum, I start the piece. There's no standing up, bowing, waiting for the audience to settle. Whoa. It's because those two chords basically are, are the words "shut up" uh-huh. with the "fuck" in brackets in the mi- mi- middle. That's what those chords are designed to do. They're designed to to, to shut the audience up because Beethoven knew that everybody would be talking, uh-huh. and they're, they're there to, to grab grab the audience. And, and there are two of them because. Well, the more the more you do it, the more the more quiet the audience will be, uh-huh. and that's why in Bar three you have the the new theme, which is really quiet. Yeah. So, the, and that's another you know, performance aspect of that, that piece for me. Uh, there's a great bit on YouTube where you can listen to the first two chords of the Roca from recorded history, so the earliest recordings to the latest recordings, and it's interesting. People find it interesting to see what the tempo is. Also, it's quite interesting to see how the pitch changes as well. Um, it's not about playing those two chords in tempo. Those two chords need to be where they are for the audience to shut up enough. So, you no, know, if they haven't shut up enough, I'll, I'll delay the second chord so that they will really shut up and they won't know what's happening. So it's not just a question of playing them in time. They're there. They're, they're there for a reason, for, a, for a, an impact on the audience specifically. So you have, to, you have to judge that by where you are and what you're doing and which audience you're playing it to. Which brings
0: up a great point about how I think the way you think about music and the way you're kind of teaching me and all your students to think about music is to think about its effect on the audience rather than
1: yeah, yeah. kind of this meditation kind of thing yeah well you probably read the yeah there's, a, there's, there's a, there, is this, there is this sort of trend of certainly modern performances it's, it's sort of this and I've seen some students as well this sort of the, the actor's yeah, sitting there at the piano very quietly and just you know, being guided by some divine
0: to
1: performance go, god so well, it 's not about that it's about real it 's about the real impact of the music on a, on an audience now, how is how is HubSpot music supposed to affect an audience it's, a, it's an it 's an intimate pastime it's not, it's not the sort of thing that's very good for large large halls it's not the reason yeah, for a lot of harpsichord music. Yeah, sure. So it, it, you know, when you really, give a harpsichord yeah. recital, it's not the same yeah. as playing the orchestra, but it's it still it still should involve people, should draw people in 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 a, in, in a way. Um, yeah, but it is it it is. And it's not that's it's not meaning that you have to grandstand or play to the balcony. It's just about trying to understand. What the, the music, the impact of the music should be uh-huh. on any given performance, any given uh, audience, or you know, the, the relevance of, the, of that music to, to any given audience. So it's yeah, it's it's it's, it's constantly changing. But, you know, what uh, the, the idea about, about that? Yeah. So yeah, and you were you grew up as a British I choir boy. I did. Yeah.
0: And I'm wondering how much of that has affected. Was that a great experience? I mean, oh, it was amazing. That's,
1: I mean, that, that whole cathedral training is it's totally unique. It's, it's, we sang yeah, up until that point. So are we carrying on with this? Is it? Um,
0: we, let's just give it a second, see if they walk away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where were we? we? Where were we? <laughs> okay, I brought up... Oh, choir boys, yes. Choir boys. And actually, I brought up choir boys because I'm wondering if the singing kind of focused your idea about sound, or line, or even effect on audience. Even though I guess cathedral singing is not <laughs> operatic singing,
1: but still. No, what 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 that training did. I mean, it was just the most extraordinary training in music you c- you can you can have really, if you have any kind of musical spark. I mean, I before I went to choir school when I was there when I was. Eight. Uh, no, nine. Um, I hadn't really listened to much classical music. Oh. I think we had one classical LP. My, my dad had a pig in suite, I think, with beach and conducting. But everything else they listened to was crooners from the 50s. Rosemary Clooney, Michael Holliday, Michael Bing Crosby, uh, Perry Como, that kind of. I listened to Cliff Richard, who was a sort of, you know, he's known as the English Elvis, and he was a bit more, you know. That, that was the kind of music I listened to. Mm. Um, it wasn't really until I started piano, so I sort of, even then I didn't really play a lot of, I know, Debussy, Claire de Lune was, I kind of knew that kind of music, but I didn't, I didn't really know much hardcore classical music, but when I went to the choir school when I was nine, uh, I was just immediately immersed in Bird, Talis, oh. everything, you know, we sang nine services a week at the cathedral. And we always had a different piece within the, within the year uh, during what, the, the anthem Song was always different oh. so we you processed an enormous amount of music, and of course you learn about lines because you're singing them, but you learn about listening to the other lines and how how those lines interact and what counterpoint is and what harmony is so by the age of eleven, I was pretty much fluent in harmony and counterpoint just, just by having sung it for hours every week and been in the middle of all of them on top of it or you know involved in, in producing it and we sang all sorts of different repertoire from say from, from the 16th century to Stravinsky or whatever it was the latest Cowpat English service and you know Howells or whatever it was but it just you just process so much music and you have to read fast you know you, you've got a half an hour rehearsal in the morning and you know, a 20 minute rehearsal before the Oh, really? Service. That's how much rehearsal you Probably, in the morning, I'm, I'm trying to remember, we probably, probably, before school, we would have a choir, a choir practice, which was probably at uh, quarter to eight or something like that, oh. maybe for 45 minutes, then we'd have a school day, and we'd go yeah, over for the service yeah. at 3.15 or 3.20, okay. uh, 15, 20 minutes before okay. service, sing from four till five, then go and do prep after school. So, yeah, it was a pretty fast process so you just learn to read you just read um, so it's, it's an, an incredible training so it just gives you an amazing you know, backbone of the basic nuts and bolts of how music works yeah all right
0: here's our last question thank you so much last one oh, no. so, well you have a coaching <laughs> in like 10 minutes. soon so I can't hold you more <laughs> I want to talk to you a little bit about continua, which you sort of yeah. brought up yeah mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people fear continuum, and when I talk talk to people about continuum, I think I always say it's easier than it looks, if that makes sense. I was just thinking how you think about continuum, how you decide what to play and when <laughs> to play it.
1: Well, I, again, I don't, it's not something. I, I, unfortunately, it's not something that I think yeah. about now. It's and because continuum, it's it's never a fixed quantity. Yeah. You know, it will change depending on who you're playing with. The same piece, if you play it with a different person, you'll play it differently. There'll be different musical ideas, hopefully. Um, so it has to be a constantly changing thing, and you know, there is there is no fixed way of playing uh, playing a movement of a Corelli slow movement of a Corelli violin sonata. Mm. It can be, you know any phrase could be a different dynamic. It, it pretty much. Yeah. So you have to have the flexibility to be able to produce that and produce it without planning it.
0: Uh-huh. So how do you get yourself in that mental and physical state? What, what would you say uh, you chicken just o- don't chicken think over about rice. It? Chicken over rice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think much? about it. You no, don't think about it? No, because it, it's just, it, that's, it, it only happens at the moment that you're doing it. Uh-huh. And, and if you play with a great great violinist, it's clear what you're going to do. And, and if, if it's somebody you know well, then, it's also interactive. It's not just about the violinist, but also what, how you, how he will interact with yes. what you're giving them as well. so It's your social choir yeah. board thing. Well, it's, it, it is. You know, it's, um, yeah, you know, that it used to be that you know continuo was seen and not heard. As the whole sort of '60s and '70s school yeah. of continuo playing was very, very minimal and very, well, it was sort of obtrusive in a nasty way, mainly because the harp sounded so nasty and the, the way they were being played they would sort of stick out these little tinkly, tinkly noises coming out from the back of a recording somewhere. But it's much more than that. It's actually, you know, the, the harmony is, is, is the bed on which the music sits. The top line and the bass, the bass supports that all. You know, so the bass and its, and its harmony is actually, that is the most important part of, of any piece of music. I often say if you're if you're doing a <clears throat> if you've got a recital book with a fiddle player or a flute player or whatever it is, and the, the fiddle player is sick, just literally the moment before the concert, you can play the program. You can play a piece. Of, you can play a Corelli violin sonata on the harpsichord. No problem. Yeah. He can't play it without you. You know, it's it, 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 it can you can produce everything from the bass and the continuo basically. Yeah. It should it should be. A fully and equal equal part of, the, of the, any any piece of music, really, um, and it's fun. It's really fun, and that that is you know, playing continuo is, is probably probably 90 percent of what we would we should be Stop doing it. as a yeah. as a school player, so you know, playing in an orchestra or recitals.
0: Well, I mean, I don't mean to suck up, but then hearing your again, I mentioned your <coughs> intimacy with uh, Corelli is just. Yeah. There were things that I didn't think
1: And you'll be pleased to know that that was recorded at Skywalker Sound. Are you serious? I'm serious, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I've sniffed the Star Wars air. Yeah. yeah. And that's amazing. Wow, it was George Lucas there. Uh, okay. he came, when we did the Pandolfi, uh-huh. the Pandolfi so we were recorded we recorded those in Skywalker as well. Uh, we did Handel and Pandolfi the a double, double session. Yeah. And yes, George Lucas came around with Clint Eastwood. So Clint, Clint and George were in the box when we were recording Pandolfi. Or the producer, unfortunately, didn't tell us until last they'd left. Oh. So I was really pissed off about that. Um, yeah, so at some point in Pandolfi, Clint was there with George. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, but that, you know, that's, that's, that was such a important relationship because we, you know, I, I knew that that was going to be a long-term relationship as soon as I heard it, really. uh-huh because he came to the same college as that I was at, at, at Cambridge, Clare, the year after I did. And I heard, I heard him playing at the, just before the Freshers concert. Yeah. He was playing Shostakovich. Or something. We played a lot of modern stuff together. We played Messiaen and all sorts all sorts of stuff. We lost modern pianotry. And actually, I had to persuade him to play baroque violin because he wasn't really interested. Really? So I just put his name on a poster and <sighs> told him to go and get a violin. Uh, put his name down. Playing Brandenburg 4. He dropped the bow in the last movement. Oh, no. Because he was not quite used to the bow yet. But, you know, that was just a great because we, we sort of grew up learning together and challenging each other uh-huh. together and it was there was such musical trust between the two of us yeah. and when we played um, the last, last concert we did 2008 we were taking Pandolfi and Bebo around and we would we would literally be off the page we, we could go walk about especially in these big long ground bases that you have in, uh-huh. in Pandolfi we uh, it would just bear no resemblance to what was on the page it we'd sort of just literally jam it and that was just really because we just trusted each other we find our way Yeah, and that's that was very special.
0: And I can, you can, actually I can hear that in the recording. It yeah. makes total sense to me. Yeah. But it's also, I feel you leading just as much as...
1: Yeah, it is, it's, it, it, well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's a, absolutely a, a sort of symbiotic relationship that was. That was very, it was very special. And you, you can have that with, you know, you can have about three or four people. I mean, the loop player I play with a lot, Bill Carter. We have the same thing. We don't, whereas as a continuo team, Two of them. We don't we don't talk about anything. We just uh, we just get just on do and do it. it. We just did a recording with a, a really really wonderful soprano English soprano called Rowan Pierce. We just did a disc of personal And uh, yeah, we, I mean, okay, occasionally we would try and make, try and make a decision about whether this is major or minor, uh-huh. and then we change our mind three times and not talk about it again. We, uh, so you just you just sort of go with it because you you trust somebody's ears and that they they're going to.
0: And does that happen right away or can it
1: develop? It can do. I um, mean, that was always the case. I think playing with Andrew, there was always a, you know, that was always, that was very, and I think with bill as well. Of course, it can develop. You can get to know people. Yeah, I think. Um, you can develop that, that kind of trust with people. Well, thank you
0: so much. You're you welcome. Have to go You're welcome. I've got
1: to go teach Frescobaldi. You have to go now. teach Frescobaldi. <laughs> thank you for taking time out of your day to do this. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper.
0: <laughs>